Hey, everybody. Today's episode with Maria Devana Headley is probably the one that will reveal the most about the least known aspect of Le Guin's writing life, her work as a translator. And while this conversation is indeed about feminist translation, what that means and the various strategies one might employ when translating, but also when doing retellings or reimaginings of classical texts, I also think you could look, as we've discussed on many of the previous episodes before now on Crafting with Ursula, at Le Guin's life as an act itself of self-re-envisioning, the way she returns to her own work and re-envisions it, retells it, retranslates herself for us as she changes and grows, is I think related to both how she translates and who she translates. What do we learn about Le Guin's view of the world when we look at how she engages with Lao Tzu or Gabriela Mistral or Virgil? Quite a bit, it turns out. And Maria's multiple engagements with Beowulf and with Virgil herself are animated by a kindred spirit. The questions Lydia Yuknovich and I explored around how Le Guin deconstructs the hero's journey and suggests other ways to storytell, the way Julie Phillips and I looked at how Le Guin finds a way to feminism that embraces motherhood and mothering, the way Isaac Yuen and I look at how humans engage or don't engage with the non-human other within narrative, or for that matter, the first conversation with Becky Chambers about how to imagine and construct aliens and alien cultures. All of these are deeply connected to questions of translation, of self-translation, the translation of otherness, what is erased or diminished or defamed, and what ways can we as poets, as storytellers, as artists, as translators, what can we do to engage with this history of masculinity, of heroes, and sometimes about recovering the portrayal of women that goes wrong not so much in the original text, but in the centuries of translations by men that reveals more about them as translators than the text they are translating for us. Before we begin, I want to mention two things. October 21st is Ursula K. Le Guin's birthday, and on that day will be the announcement of the winner of the inaugural Ursula K. Le Guin Prize in Fiction. If you're listening to this episode before October 21st, you can still attend the virtual announcement of this year's winner. You can find out more at UrsulaKLeGuin.com slash prize22, where you can read about the nine shortlisted books and the five remarkable judges who will decide the first winner of this new prize. Lastly, if you're enjoying this monthly series, consider joining the community of listener supporters. Every supporter gets a resource-rich email with each episode. This month is particularly oceanic in scope and depth. And speaking of this, as I was getting together the resources for today's message to supporters, 
I was poking around Le Guin's various translations and came across something I didn't know about prior to my conversation with Maria, that Le Guin had translated a poem by Borges called Written in a Copy of Beowulf. Amazed by the uncanniness of this, I sent it to Maria just for fun, but she decided to record a reading of it for the bonus audio archive, something I'm sure Borges would be delighted by, that Le Guin translated Borges's written in a copy of Beowulf, only to have that translation read by Maria, the translator of Beowulf, a set of Borgesian nested realities, for sure. The bonus audio archive and a wealth of potential other rewards and gifts to choose from, including rare Le Guin collectibles, can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode of Crafting with Ursula on feminist translation and classical retellings with Maria Devana Headley. The connection between what I do as a writer, make, making worlds out of words, and what my wizards do, using words to kind of remake the world and change the world and cast spells and that magic in Earthsea is word magic. I mean, obviously, to me, words do make magic, in a sense. They make something new or different. What I'm after, ultimately, is to make something beautiful. Just like a potter making a pot or a sculptor carving a statue. Art has to do with making something that is satisfying and beautiful. I see my job as, as holding doors open or opening windows, but who comes in and out the doors? What you see out the window? How do I know? My responsibility is just to keep the mind open, not close it off. That's enough right there. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Crafting with Ursula. Today's guest is author, translator, editor, playwright, screenwriter, and monster maker, Maria Devana Headley. Headley grew up in the high desert of Idaho on a survivalist sled dog ranch where she spent summers plucking the winter coat from her father's wolf. She left Idaho to study dramatic writing at the Tisch School of the Arts program at NYU and has since written many varied works across genre, including a young adult space fantasy novel, Magonia, an alternate history fantasy novel, Queen of Kings, the horror novella, The End of the Sentence with Cat Howard, and a memoir, The Year of Yes. She also co-edited with Neil Gaiman the anthology Unnatural Creatures, containing natural history-themed monster stories by writers from Samuel Delaney to Nalo Hopkinson. Her fiction and short fiction have been widely anthologized, including in multiple volumes of Best American Fantasy and Science Fiction, shortlisted for Hugo, Locus, Shirley Jackson, Tip Tree, and Joyce Carol Oates Awards, and have won the 2020 World Fantasy Award in short fiction. Her essays on gender, chronic illness, politics, propaganda, and mythology have been published or covered 
everywhere from the New York Times to the Daily Beast. She's on faculty at the MFA program in creative writing at Sarah Lawrence and has delivered master classes and writing lectures all over from Harvard and Stanford to Iowa and Oxford. She's also published two books that are deeply engaged with reimagining Beowulf. Her novel, The Mere Wife, a modern retelling of Beowulf named by the Washington Post as one of the most notable works of fiction in 2018, is described by Ron Charles as a bloody parody of suburban sanctimony and a feminist revision of macho heroism. In this brash appropriation of the Anglo-Saxon epic, Headley swoops from comedy to tragedy, from the drama of brunch to the horrors of war. The most surprising novel I've read this year. Kelly Link says, This is not just an old story in new clothes. This is a consciousness-altering mind trip of a book. Samuel Delaney calls Headley a master storyteller and brilliant stylist, and Margaret Atwood praises the book as a smart, tough, modern flip of Beowulf told from Grendel's mother. In 2020, Headley followed this up with a feminist translation of Beowulf itself, Beowulf, A New Translation. Beowulf, A New Translation was named a book of the year by everyone from the Atlantic to NPR to the Irish Times. It was picked by Kirkus Reviews for its best fiction and translation of 2020, named one of the best poetry books of 2021 by The Guardian, and it won both the 2021 Harold Morton Landon Translation Award from the Academy of American Poets and a Hugo Award that same year. Joe Livingston for the Poetry Foundation says, Headley's Beowulf is a tragicomic epic about the things men do to impress one another. It's as fierce an examination of masculine weakness as the mere wife was of feminine strength. And none other than the iconic mythographer Marina Warner adds, Headley's Beowulf is enthralling, scalding. Headley combines newly wrought ancient kennings with U.S. street slang and lights up the women in the poem with unusual sympathy, including Grendel's mother and the dragon. The thousand years and more since these ferocious hatreds and battles were recorded dissolve. The griefs and the rage are still all too present. So what better writer to join us today to talk about Le Guin in relation to feminist translation and the reimagining of the classics and the canon than Maria Devana Headley, not only for what I have just recounted, but also consider this, how Headley spoke about Le Guin shortly after her passing in an essay called Stop Calling Ursula K. Le Guin a Grand Old Dame, where she says of Ursula, she was a sword-swinging, battle-hardened, blast-brained badass. She was like no one else, a destroyer of common myths, a fighter against hierarchical horseshit, a radical, a maker of worlds, an inventor, an anarchic destabilizer of established power structures, and a ferocious critic of racist and sexist narratives, not a remarkable old dame. Welcome to Crafting with Ursula, Maria Devana Headley. Thank you. Thank you. So before we talk about feminist translation and classical retellings, tell us about your first encounters with Le Guin as a reader of her. And then second, tell us about how your life intersected with hers 
uh, at a particularly momentous moment for Le Guin herself? Well, as a young reader in Idaho, I was um, forever prowling every bookshelf. I was sort of raised in the library in Boise. We would go every once in a while, every month or so. We would go from the small town, Marsing, where I grew up, to um, to Boise. And always I would be just on the hunt, <laughs> hungry, hungry and seeking um seeking women really I was seeking I was like well I'm a weird girl nobody quite understands me back then I would have said that I was um that I was shy and awkward but really looking back I realized that I was kind of trying to run everything and be the queen so it was a different state of affairs really but I was looking for the female warriors and I found them in Le Guin I was looking for um you know people who could do magic and I found them in Le Guin I was looking and I was looking also for the weird covers, I will admit. I was looking for <laughs> any cover that showed a, met, a magnificent world that wasn't our world. I thought, well, I guess I'm going to have to go to a world like that in order to um, find what I'm looking for. So that that was the beginning. Um, and then I kind of kept, kept sort of running alongside um, my first encounters with, with the books that were the more popular books when I was in junior high school. Onward into the ones who walk away from Onalas, um, and into the the moving aspects, the emotional aspects of her work, which I didn't initially perceive really at all. I was I was hunting for plot and fury, and um, and then I came through and discovered yearning and hope and um, devastation, which I didn't ever really notice at the beginning of of reading her. Yeah, so so that was the beginning. I didn't know that I was a fantastical writer at all, even though that was what I was reading all the time. I didn't understand that the world would think there was a division uh, between literary, quote unquote, and genre fiction. I thought it was all the same thing. Mm. So it seemed absolutely strange to me that she was on a different shelf. It seemed like she belonged with all of the other wonderful things, the myths and the fairy tales and the Arthurian legends and all the things that I thought they just all belonged together. I didn't think that they should be categorized elsewhere or any of them should be categorized elsewhere. So ultimately it became clear to me that, um, that her, her work like mine ultimately has become um, is just across all the genres and like wants to live on all the shelves ideally. So I had never met her until I just sort of like longing to be in her presence, but also daunted for my whole career, I started writing books pretty, uh, my first book came out in 2006. And then I was going forward writing stuff, you know, my first novel 2010. And in 2014, uh, Neil Gaiman took me along with him to the National Book Awards where he was presenting an award to Ursula. And he was so generous. He um, he let me sit next to her at the table. So we were at a round table and I found myself sitting next to Ursula Le Guin um, who was very nervous because she was going to give a speech. And so we had a little small conversation. I was sort of jaw dropped, awestruck, couldn't really talk, felt embarrassed um, and nervous. And she wasn't, she was lovely. There was no reason for me to feel that way. She was very, she was very nice to me, but she was really nervous because she said, well, I'm about to give, give a speech. And I said, well, what kind of speech? It's just a, a thank you speech. It's a receiving of a career achievement speech. And she said, oh, no, no, that's not, <laughs> not what it is. <laughs> and she stood up and gave the speech that then became really legendary about 
crushing the the monopoly of Amazon. Um, a really ferocious and glorious speech about how people had always believed that the kings were ruling by divine right, and that was just wrong belief. It was um, it was ferocious. Everyone stood up. Even people who were attacked by the speech stood up. <laughs> it was uh. It was a wonderful moment in an otherwise strange National Book Awards ceremony yeah. that had other things about it that were that were weird and troublesome. But her speech was glorious, so it was a it was a glorious thing to be sitting beside her. Well, and it was probably her most viral speech that she's ever given as well. So it's a real historic moment. A whole bunch of people heard about Ursula Le Guin for the first time when she gave that speech. Yeah. I think, yeah, people who had no idea. So, so I want to begin by asking your theory on something. I have my own theory on this, but I'd like to hear your theory on it. So your your fellow feminist classical retellers and or translators, Emily Wilson, the first woman to translate the Odyssey into English, and Madeline Miller, the author of both The Song of Achilles and Circe, they're also big admirers of Le Guin. And I don't think this is primarily because of Le Guin's own translations or her classical retellings of the Aeneid, for both of them, it is the Earthsea series that they speak to. Emily Wilson, when Le Guin died, said, I read her Earthsea trilogy many times as a child and teenager, and I'm going to reread it again now in memory. And she also talks about reading The Wizard of Earthsea to her children. But even more remarkably, she says, I realize now that Le Guin's language helped me in my Odyssey translation concrete, magical Anglo-Saxon words evoking a seafaring world of adventure and revelation. And I think this is just so amazing that when I read Wilson's translation of Homer, that the tone and syntax and the music beneath the words is influenced by Le Guin, Le Guin reaching back to Homer and through Wilson. But similarly, Madeline Miller is entranced with Ursi. When, when asked what book character she would want to be best friends with, she says Tanar from the Tombs of Atuan. And speaking of The Wizard of Earthsea, she says, this is a beautiful and deceptively simple novel about a gifted boy who makes a terrible mistake. From the first sentence, I was hypnotized by Le Guin's elegant, clean prose and the evocative lure of her place names, Celador, Gaunt, Ifish, Havnor, Le Guin's parents were anthropologists, and it shows in the care she takes with every corner of her compelling world and the characters that fill it. She has a way of finding elegy in the rituals of daily life, sweeping a floor or rigging a ship. It's a book that is at once profoundly thoughtful and profoundly accessible. It can be read by anyone at any age, but the greatest treat, read it aloud. So, so why do you think you and your peers in classical retelling look to Le Guin this way, who isn't on the surface in most of her books retelling a classic at all or translating. I think we probably all have in common. I've spoken with both of these women in various uh, various events over the last few years. A real appreciation for the mythic stuff being transmitted in a, in prosaic language that is accessible. And Le Guin does that all the time. I think part of her mission and part of the way that her work works is that she uses language that can be 
grasped by anyone from from a 10 year old to a 90 year old like it's it's easily grabbable and easily committed to memory it has that in common with um at one point i was talking to emily about about wine dark sea about repetitive phrases in the odyssey and the ways that those would be used like a song chorus to keep them in the memory to go this is this is our story this is a story that we know the chorus of this song and in the oral tradition of course that runs through all of it but i think that Le Guin's work has that feeling too it has that that sort of here's our story here's the story that we're all we're all in it we're all we all have our little spot here we all know it we could we could be shouting this story around the fire we'd all be able to say the words um even though there are deep complex concepts running through all all of her work as well and things that are not easily graspable by people in a civilization like ours in some cases the language is um is somehow both lyrical and luscious and also accessible mm -hmm. in the way that i think um often is the case in those epic poems and in those in those, uh, not in all of the translations of the epic poems, I might add, but in some of them, you get the sense that that you could learn the the sort of history of your of your world by learning those stories and by being able to sort of chant them along with the old man who's your like great uncle, and you you're all there together. And there's a sense of like collective ownership that I think is transmitted in Le Guin's language as well as in the language of a lot of those classic texts, including the ones that all three of us have worked on. Well, you sort of have already answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyways, partly so we can hear Le Guin's words, which are sort of in it, but also to redirect the question to your work. Um, so I, I thought I had a theory about why feminist classicists might love Le Guin, but when I, when I, attended to what Wilson and Miller actually say and what you've just said, th this other theory intervenes. So they focus on, like you do here, Le Guin's prose, her language, where Miller and Wilson say things like elegant, clean prose or the evocative lure of her place names or her concrete, magical Anglo-Saxon words. And this was the topic of, of my uh, conversation with Molly Gloss for the for the series, writing the clear, clean line, which is a phrase that both her and Kim Stanley Robinson used to describe Le Guin's prose, the clear, clean line. But I wondered if this speaks to something more. I think you've already answered this. Beneath the surface, something more that would connect her style to classical text. So this is Le Guin in her essay, Text Silence Performance where she talks about how people used to be aware that the written word was the visible sign of an audible sign and that the audible sign was itself an event in the world, often associated with performance. And that connection between the written and the oral has been weakened with the oral now greatly devalued. So in this essay, when thinking about what distinguishes the sound of words from the notes of music, Le Guin says, word spoken and note sung both enter the mind through that world and delicate fleshy gateway, the ear. Poem written or song written come through the crystalline receiver of quanta, the eye, in search of the inner, the mental ear. In music, this eye detour is a convenience, 
an adjunct only. Music goes on being what is sounded and heard. But the written word found a detour past both outer ear and inner ear to non-sensory understanding, a kind of short circuit, a way around the body. Written text can be read as pure sign, as meaning alone. When we started doing that, the word stopped being an event. So as much as you've already spoken to this, I wonder if this provokes any further thoughts before I ask you about Beowulf in, the, in this context. Because it feels like in a way Le Guin is recoupling language to the oral, to the ear, the performance, and the event. But if you had any further thoughts you wanted to add, uh, I would love to hear them. I do. I mean, this is this is something that I think about all the time because the first writing I did was poetry and my what I did with the poetry was not... I didn't see myself as a person who would just have it on the page. I always performed it. I was in Idaho standing up at an open mic for my entire, all of my teenage years, um, performing, like doing it like I was doing it around a campfire. And also in Idaho, there's the, the uh, sort of cowboy poetry stuff is happening all the time. There's a big storytelling tradition in the, in the part of the country that I'm from. And that led me to doing theater, um, which is of course also oral poetry, oral storytelling. And when I began to write prose and publish books, I didn't I didn't know that's what I was because I thought, well, I, it has to be spoken. It won't make sense unless you speak it. it. The way that the poetry works doesn't make sense on the page. And I find ultimately that it does. But one of the reasons that I continue to write with the kind of meter that I use, with the kind of uh, alliteration and rhyming internal hidden rhymes, it's because I want it to be spoken. It's and and alongside what Ursula says there, which is exactly how I feel about. I feel robbed of the oral tradition generally. I think I think woefully about this all the time because I think about years ago. I was um, my former my father in law was had had Alzheimer's and he was in a care unit. And everyone there would sing. They would they would sing with a there was a piano and they would be singing the songs that they knew, which was they knew every song. They had all the songs remained in their memory, um, in a way that their memory didn't remain in their memory. It was gone, but the the memory of their lives in large parts just missing. But the the knowledge of the story was still there because it was in a separate spot. Mm. And I always think about the way that that separate emotion can travel with the things that came into your mind orally, that you can have these reserves of potential for empathy, for, for movement that are not necessarily accessible on the, on the page or accessible really in any other way than in a, in language that comes into your ears as song or as rhythmic recitation. It stays, stays with you in a different way. And I think can move you and in some ways, and really, I think can change the world in a different way, the knowledge of, of a spoken story. So, yeah. So when I, when I think about the lack of the way that event has been taken from us, as Ursula says, I absolutely agree. The event of, of a story got taken away. The, the event of a publication is really different from the event of a story. Like having published many books, I'm thrilled when I get my book and I can open it, but the event of, telling the story and you know whatever you're doing a launch party or maybe you get to do the audiobook 
Um, but it's a different feeling than getting to stand in front of a room full of people and hear them breathing, which you do in the theater, um, hear them laughing, hear them crying. It's such a different, a palpable feeling of, I guess, of changing the world, which is, of course, always what I'm thinking about. And I think that all really all of Ursula's work is about that, too. It's it's the feeling of changing the world through speaking the change is um is is really part of the oral tradition so yeah so i i, I basically just agree with everything that she said there and, and it, i find it very moving that she said that i'd never heard heard those words before yeah well I, I would love to hear you speak to how orality and performance and event play into the way you approach your translation of beowulf i think of when marina warner says that you combine newly wrought ancient kennings with u.s street slang which I feel like gets an aspect of it. But then Joe Livingston for the Poetry Foundation, when she says, your book resembles nothing so much as a man telling a long but compelling story in a bar, which seems to capture another aspect of your book. How is the oral and the performative part of the project? And then by extension, how is the performative linked to the performance of masculinity in your retelling too? Well, when I decided to do this translation, um, it was sort of <laughs> a wild hair it took me because someone in a QA and a um, asked me when my translation was coming out, a Q&A for the mere wife. And I said, well, it's not, I'm not doing that. That's not happening. I'm absolutely done with Beowulf. And then about four days later, um, it occurred to me that I wanted to do a translation uh, and that I wanted to start deconstructing masculine language with this in, in a way that I hadn't done with the mere wife. The mere wife was really about the women of the Beowulf story. And so I, I had the notion to, to get into the ways that men tell stories, because it seemed to me when I, when I first read, well, not when I first read, I've read a bajillion translations of Beowulf over the years, never satisfied, consistently frustrated, looking for the dreamy one that I, that I wanted to read. Um, but at some point along the way, I read Tolkien's translation when I was working on Mere Wife. It had come out in 2014 and it had been never intended to be published, really. It was his like private, his baby. Um, and so it was deeply edited and worked on at length by his son and finally came out. And it's in a very courtly language. It's um sounds like Tolkien, you know, it's it's like it's a formal language, and that was a big deal for Tolkien. Tolkien wanted it to feel that way. He wanted it to feel different from our world. He wanted it to feel important. He felt that it, nobody felt that it was important enough. So he wanted it to feel that way. Um, so the way that he uses the language is a distancing kind of language. And as I was reading it, I thought, well, that's weird because the story here is the kind of story that drunk dudes tell at a bar. Like it's so clear to me that that's here. And it was even more clear to me because of the formal language that he was using that the, the material and the style were at odds with each other. Um, and and I think I'm grateful that I read that translation, even though it wasn't my it wasn't what I wanted. <laughs> I wanted it to be glorious. It didn't feel glorious to me, but it felt really enlightening because the um, that kind of language told me what it wasn't. And as I was reading it, I thought, no, this is this is that annoying guy on the bar stool next to you who can't stop. He just won't let it go. He's just telling you and telling you and telling you about his dude about his bro who's his Beowulf who did these this amazing shit and he was there for it that was already in the text it was like right there 
even though it's in old English and it's not language that's like saying the words that I just used, the um the sense of it was there. So I it seemed pretty obvious to me that I could use the narrative voice in the story in a way that most translators haven't used it. They've used it as a kind of incidental, but it felt to me like that narrative voice could just travel through the voice of the of the poet going, I was there, I was there, I was there for this moment. I saw it, I saw the gold, I saw the gifts, I saw the crazy shit occur. And it's over several hundred years that the guy is saying that he was there, um, which is such a consistent mode of storytelling among you know thousands of years of human stories. We always say we were there. We always say, we tell it in the present tense. We say, I was, I watched it. I, it, was ha it happened right here in front of me. It's happening right now. As I speak, it's happening. And that's just such a, it's a, such an oral tradition way to tell a story, to tell it with the most vigorous tone, with the most vigorous language, because otherwise your audience is napping and too drunk and they're like over their food and they're not listening to you anymore. They've lost the plot. And you see throughout the, the text of the Beowulf poem, you see that people are losing the plot and the poet keeps saying, let me recap what happened in this last section of the poem when you were asleep. Let me remind you that there was a big battle and Grendel's arm got torn off. So all of that just was really... It was a really easy transit. I mean, I say easy. I put my fingers up in quotes because it was hard, <laughs> but it wasn't hard for me to get there from what existed. It was it was pretty easy for me to imagine a person into that storytelling and to imagine a person not only performing their own masculinity, performing their own like storyteller status, which may or may not be that of a person who's male. We don't know who wrote Beowulf. We don't know who that scribe was, who was writing it down when it was performed. We don't know any of those things, but we do know that it's a story in which the men are just constantly bragging about themselves and bigging themselves up and saying, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. So we, <laughs> we get, that. yeah. and that's actually what they say in my translation um, when we get that sense. So it's um, yeah, it's, I, I liked the feeling of making it essentially a long monologue. And I guess that comes from being a playwright. I, I could imagine someone standing up and performing this really easily. It was it was obvious to me that that was part of the nature of the poem, just from looking at the way the story is told, because it's just right there. Well, it, it's interesting that, on the one hand, Tolkien is uh, credited for, in some ways, rescuing Beowulf from the margins of literary interest, um, and it, with his essay, The Monsters and the Critics, that um, Le Guin herself nods to with the title of an essay of hers, The Critics, the Monsters, and the Fantasists. Uh -huh. um, but then, like, um, I was reading the words of Andy Orchard, who's the professor of Anglo-Saxon at the University of Oxford, which is the position Tolkien himself held uh, before Andy Orchard, who who thinks this is a very valuable book, his, his private translation of Beowulf is valuable, uh, particularly the endnotes, um, but he feels like the translation is truly terrible, even though he thinks it's a valuable document. But the translation aspect of it, he found poor. And you, in one conversation, described Tolkien's version as giving a really great depiction of a ridiculously heightened masculinity. And I, and but it sounds to me like any version should have a heightened sense of masculinity. How would you characterize Tolkien's? ridiculously heightened masculinity and in, in contrast to the one you've just described to us? Well, I guess I would describe Tolkien's version of this as a sentimental masculinity. 
I mean, Tolkien loved masculinity. <laughs> he loved to write about it. He loved to write about the pain of masculinity and the the difficulty of being a warrior, the the emotional difficulty of being a warrior. That was a really big thing for him. And that, of course, runs all the way through the center of Beowulf, even though Beowulf, as a character himself, doesn't care. Beowulf does not actually grow or learn throughout the course of the story about Beowulf. He's just he's just a dude and he's doing the biggest thing he can do. Um, but the Tolkien translation gives you a kind of like gilded version of that kind of masculinity. It, it wraps him in pretty. It makes him pretty, which is to me, um, I guess that's what I mean by heightened. It's that kind of like shiny Brad Pittification of, of somebody who's actually covered in grit and dirt and scabs and is like got a dirty mouth and gives no shits at all like which is how i envision that character yeah. um the things he said he says in the beowulf story run in my mind run very much along the lines of what i just said rather than along the lines of oh loyal friend you must hear me when i when i speak my love to you oh king hrothgar like i just don't feel like he talks like that and the idea of patriarchal respect and appropriate behavior is also deep in Tolkien's work. That's something that he really, really thought about. And it meant it mattered to him. It matters less to me. I'm more interested in the complexity and jagged edges of those relationships, the ways in which those things fail, those which are also really part of the of story, like the failure to listen, the failure to take advice from the paternal character runs right through, causes big problems. And that stuff is more interesting to me than the stuff that's romantic and lovely and courtly. Let's hear the opening passage to your translation of Beowulf okay. um, so that we can hear the tone and the syntax and the vocabulary you choose. Bro, tell me we still know how to speak of kings. In the old days, everyone knew what men were, brave, bold, glory bound. Only stories now, but I'll sound the Spearedane's song, hoarded for hungry times. Their first father was a foundling, shield shaving. He spent his youth fists up, browbeating every barstool brother, bonfiring his enemies. That man began in the waves, a baby in a basket, but he bootstrapped his way into a kingdom trading loneliness for luxury. Whether they thought kneeling necessary or no, everyone from head to tail of the whale road bent down. There's a king. There's his crown. That was a good king. Later, God sent Shield a son, a wolf cub, further proof of manhood. Being God, he knew how the Spear Danes had suffered, the misery they'd mangled through leaderless, long years of loss. So the life lord, that almighty big boss, birthed them an earth shaker. Beo's name kissed legions of lips by the time he was half grown, but his own father was still breathing. We all know a boy can't daddy until his daddy's dead. A smart son gives gifts to his father's friends in peacetime. When war woos him, as war will, he'll need those troops to follow the leader. Privilege is the way men prime power the world over. I'm listening to Maria Devana Headley read from Beowulf, a new translation. So in another essay of Le Guin's called Reciprocity of Prose and Poetry, 
Le Guin says, Translation is entirely mysterious. Increasingly, I have felt that the act of writing is itself translation, or more like translating than it is like anything else. What is the other text, the original? I have no answer. I suppose it is the source, the deep sea where ideas swim, and one catches them in nets of words and swings them shining into the boat, where in this metaphor, they die and get canned and eaten as sandwiches. I love how perhaps when you capture words from the unknown sea, a sea that is this non-existent original text of writing as translation, that perhaps if the words don't stay connected to the event that they originally signified, that they do get canned, um, like these sardine sandwiches. Um, but also thinking of this broader sense of translation where writing, writing itself is translation in the first place. My original theory why Emily, Madeline, and you might all be interested in Le Guin was the way so many of her writings could be seen as retellings or translations. Her story, Sir, and her essay, A Non-Euclidean View of California as a Cold Place to Be, are both a retelling and deconstruction of male discovery and progress myths. The story she unnames them is a feminist retelling of Genesis. But even at the very beginning with Ursie, you could see this too as her first and deepest engagement with the hero's journey. Uh, Like Odysseus, Ged is going from island to island to island. Like Beowulf, he's confronted with a monster and a dragon, both. But unlike both, there's no looting, there's no murder, there's no conquest, and there's no bragging afterwards. It's all motivated by a desire to repair something he did out of ego. The last episode of the show with Lydia Yuknovich was about the carrier bag theory of fiction. Le Guin's touchstone essay that topples the hero and aims for a completely different relationship to story. And you've said yourself, quote, I'm deeply interested in the way we've used hero myths to construct political narratives and the way we've used them to justify violence and injustice against others, whomever the others may be. So I wondered if you could talk for a moment about your relationship to the hero's journey as a mode of storytelling and a way to shape and frame a story and how you go about undercutting it. That's interesting. All of it is interesting. My brain is just running around in circles excitedly. Um, As far as the hero's journey, it's once I started to realize what those stories were about, it began to (laughs) aggrieve me, (laughs) I guess, is what happened. Even though the possibility of a woman being a hero or a person who's not a cis man being a hero is there in the original things that I was that I came up as a reader gobbling up, it was it was often men. And the men were doing, they were just constantly questing for a quest, like going, I need to have a quest so I can prove that I'm the man, so that I can prove that I have the most strength, that I have the most glorious. And sometimes the prize was a woman. Sometimes you get a princess or you get a bride or you get, you know, someone like in, in my childhood version of myself, it was me who was the prize. And I didn't want to be the prize. I didn't like that story at all. I didn't have any desire to be um, 
off stage, <laughs> trapped over here, like not part of the journey, just one of the trophies. And in my work, um, when I think about the journeys that my characters go on, it's really, it's never that. It's never, it's never that kind of quest. It's not a quest to prove status. Sometimes it's a quest to get satisfaction, but the satisfaction is often the satisfaction of justice. It's the satisfaction of fairness, um, which is all I care about. <laughs> like, and it's as a writer, it's what I care about. As a, as a person, it's what I care about. I care about, I care about it being even. And so often my characters, their their hero journey is that they are trying to level the playing field. They're trying to get what was denied. Um, whether it's the the floor for the storytelling, whether there's their voices have been left out of the story, which has often happened, of course, across the history of uh, curation and gatekeeping of story, and uh, who got to learn how to write and who got to tell those stories and have them in the libraries, whose stories got burned. Um, and those are things that I think about all the time when I think about the the kind of glorious horde of of the stories that we have. I think about also the glorious horde of the stories that are gone and that we never got to have. And those are the ones I'm always trying to imagine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and those stories are weirder. Those stories are people tunneling up from places where they're not allowed to be. Those stories are stories about, not about being born into comfort. They're about being born into impossibility and surviving. So they're all survivor stories as well. And the hero stories are not so much about that. They often do have elements of survival. You have to survive the monster that you challenged. Um, you have to survive the dragon that you decide to fight by yourself as an old man if you're Beowulf and you don't, <laughs> which is an interesting thing. I, Working on the Beowulf stuff, I became much more interested in, in looking at those stories than I have ever been. I've always been like, whatever, those stories, the stories about the guys. And I, you know, I'm a person who's interested in all of the stories, but I, I was just like bored from the, from jump by all the stories about the men doing the things because I just could feel the injustice, I guess. And the injustice made me grumpy. And so I was always digging, 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 looking for trouble and finding it. There's lots of trouble to be found on the margins. <laughs> like the characters who come running through screaming those are the ones that I've always been most interested in. The heroes sometimes do that, but they're screaming a challenge and they're coming to kill. And then sometimes the people screaming at the margin of the story are the people who are actually telling the story. In my opinion, those are the voices that I tend to hear. And back to what the, the sort of translation, writing as an active translation, it's, it's interesting to hear those words because I, I feel I feel that way myself completely. I more This is the first thing I've ever... The certainly strange choice to translate a very famous epic poem is your first thing that you're ever going to translate besides like a couple of little poems um, from the 11th century. I've translated a couple of tiny poems as part of something else, but this was the first project I'd ever done. And as I did it, I felt like, oh, oh, this is what I've been doing the whole time. I just didn't have another text that I was working from that anyone could see. I could see it. Like I was sort of grabbing the story out of the wind which is an annoying thing to say, even to hear myself say it, I find it annoying because of course, lots of women's work gets categorized as channeling or as like some sort of like 
astral nurturing of story, <laughs> which is annoying to me because of course it is work. Like writing is always work. Making a story is work. But for me, one of the most glorious things that ever happens as a writer is that I feel like I'm hearing the words and just writing them down and that they're coming and that I'm making them make sense to the people who are going to read them or hear them now in our time. And I, I often feel that way in the best, the best version, <laughs> the best is that's how it feels to be doing the kind of writing that I do. And I've, of course I've chosen, I've chosen to do that kind of writing, the kind of writing where I'm unearthing and grabbing, uh, heroic and ferocious stories that weren't in the originals but it's and sometimes are in the originals but the person is depicted very differently i'm not always using stuff that's the old texts but i'm often grabbing characters that are that type of character and uh that's that's the pleasure of it i think is finding finding the unspoken finding the pauses and in them are whole stories well that idea of writing itself being translation, but in the absence of an original text. It also reminds me, maybe in its most material form of her book, Always Coming Home, where she, I mean, that book came out with a cassette tape originally of the music that was created by this imagined uh, people, the Kesh, and where she had invented with Todd Barton the, the, the actual instruments of this music that the Kesh played. But she invents a language for this these this people of post-apocalyptic California, but she wrote the translations of their performance pieces and songs, the ones that we encounter in the book, before she'd invented the language that it was translated from. So that's interesting that we have this sort of actual parallel to that um, that metaphorical notion. But to stay a little longer with ways to engage with these weirder stories that are erased or the, or ways to weird the hero's stories that we encounter in Emily Wilson's introduction to her translation of the Odyssey. She orients us to the ways that she reorients us to the text. Um, she talks about how the Epic is really about codes of hospitality, but that those codes were as much a means to extend empire as anything else. Where, where the people who would be received and receive safe harbor, um, those people aren't your enemies. Um, so it's not anybody who's going to receive hospitality. And the first thing that happens when you are welcomed is that you're washed by the host's slaves, who by definition aren't even considered in this equation of hospitality. But Emily, in her translation, emphasizes the presence of the slaves. She also talks about how the Phoenicians, who are seen as deceptive pirates and looters really aren't doing anything different than what Odysseus and his fellow Greeks are doing. And that the monstrous Cyclops people are really just Sicilians who are minding their own business, conducting a quiet life without looting and conquest, um, who are certainly not inviting Odysseus to come and destroy them. Mm -hmm. um, she talks about how other male translators have added things that aren't in the original. Helen's beauty is often portrayed as the cause of the conflict, but in the text it says little about her looks. The, the scene of women slaves being hung, often male translators embellish this as if they were sluts, and thus suggesting that we as readers should cheer for their deaths. She also highlights the presence of Athena as a guiding through line in the book by placing an owl at the beginning of each chapter. 
And I think of all of this, this changing of what is emphasized and sometimes what is added without justification. Also, when I think of Le Guin's translations of the Tao Te Ching, and the Tao Te Ching is something she worked on for most of her adult life, for decades. Um, and she sees the scholarly translations of the Tao Te Ching as emphasizing the uniqueness of the sage, his masculinity and his authority. I think in a similar spirit to Wilson, she both downplays this aspect of the sage and expands the notion of the sage or the ruler to include people like mothers. She says, I wanted a book of the way accessible to a present day, unwise, unpowerful, perhaps unmale reader, not seeking esoteric secrets, but listening for a voice that speaks to the soul. She also says, the Tao is really an action rather than a person, and it's an action in which everyone can share. The more you share, the more you approach what a theist or deist is going to call union with Godhead. Although this is not in Lao Tzu's vocabulary, it is interesting that he is a goddess mystic. She takes this to the level of grammar also sometimes, where she'll drop the male pronoun altogether, removing the he not from the original, the original didn't have a he, but differing from most translators by returning the language back to its original, more gender-neutral condition, changing he-who to simply who, in the lines like, who knows doesn't talk, who talks doesn't know. So I was hoping maybe in the spirit of all of this, of Wilson's introduction and the choices that she makes and in, in, in the spirit of what Le Guin has done with Lao Tzu, can, can you talk about your engagement with Beowulf in this fashion? Beyond engaging with a masculine hero's journey's narrative and wanting to interrogate it, did you discover misogyny in the characterization of the women that came from the translators themselves rather than the original text? And what were your considerations in characterizing Grendel's mom and the dragon in this light? Well, this is something that I thought about a lot, obviously. I was really, I had already, I was like deep into like a, an eight year thinking about Beowulf <laughs> when I started this. Um, I had been muttering and muttering and muttering about misogyny about, in this text for years at this point when I started to do this translation. And one of the reasons that I that I did the mere wife that I that I decided to tell the sort of Grendel's mother story in that book, or a version of the Grendel's mother story, obviously not the only one, but a version of it, was that I kept encountering in translations of Beowulf um, language depicting her as ugly. Like she has, she's not physically described in the text of Beowulf. She's described as tall. She's tall, <laughs> and her son is tall. He also has some like monstrous characteristics. But she doesn't have any that are that we learn about. We we know she's very good with a sword. We know she's strong. She's really strong. Um, we know she's probably about seventy. She's been queen of her realm as long as Hrothgar, so fifty years. So it seems clear to me that in some of the translations by men, mostly she is she's furry. She is she has long fangy teeth. She's like really hideous like sometimes just hideous is used ugly hell bride things like that Seamus Heaney calls her hell bride um which is not a wrongful set of words for what she she's like you know she's on she's living under the surface she however she's kind of married to the mirror to the water she doesn't have a husband she doesn't have it that we hear about we don't hear about Grendel's father at all 
so it seemed really again clear to me it seemed obvious to me just looking at the way the missing parts here that it was very possible that she was just a single woman who had skills who's strong who's a good warrior who's a good fighter and that our understanding of a woman as being a ferocious warrior and strong like that uh has been was lost we decided that wasn't appropriate and so there were a couple of centuries and we still have this feeling now but victorian period of time wherein that was just non-viable it was something we couldn't imagine and the tradition of not being able to imagine it persevered <laughs> and so what happened then was that she became a monster that no human woman would be able to do those things they wouldn't be appropriate for a human woman to do so it it's in the language that surrounds those translations and and Grendel's mother they do people do different things they make her often very ugly but also libidinous in a way that is not there um there is the the language that says that she sits on Beowulf's chest when she's fighting him and she's about to kill him to me unlikely that that's sex but maybe I mean who yeah. knows some people really really feel that it is they think it's like kinky and kind of hot to me that's like unlikely yeah she is grieving her son has come home he's dying he's dead in the back room she is has just taken revenge legal revenge she's killed one person because her son is dead and now she's gone home with the one person that she's killed um she hasn't done anything wild she hasn't bitten everyone she hasn't like killed a whole room full of sleeping drunk soldiers which she could have done she didn't do that instead she does the right thing quote unquote and she then is attacked by Beowulf who comes sneaking into her house does she want to fuck him unlikely to me pretty unlikely and she doesn't need to like, it's not a scenario where she has to fuck him in order to survive, um, which we, you know, that's a scenario. Okay, maybe, maybe, but it's not part of this story as far as I can tell. So for me, it was about peeling back these like ideas about what a powerful woman could be um, that are grafted onto women, you know, over centuries. The idea that the only way to be powerful as a woman is to be very sexy, which is something that, I mean, in my own life as a woman, I've encountered the idea that somehow as like a woman in my 20s, I had more power than men in their 70s. And then men felt that way about me. They felt like I could get to things they couldn't get to. And I was like, yeah, but a price, like also getting like shoved and pinched and grabbed and smooshed down and told that I wasn't intelligent. All those things were part of it. It wasn't like I had unfettered access like you did, dude, who tells me this, right? you know? Am I remembering correctly that Grendel's mom's hands are described as claws when they really are fingers? Yeah, it's uh, by some translators. Yes, she's described as having claws, but it's it's the word for fingers. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of across the board with Grendel's mother. This not every translation does it. Some some more recent translations don't. They they believe that she's probably a human warrior and has has warrior training and and that's what i feel about her i feel that she she's human um she's living in a weird spot but that's not a, that's not crazy like weird spots all over the place and and she's essentially living in a cave um i feel that she's an othered character definitely she's a character who isn't part of the society that has come and built here at hall she's not part of that group they have built their shiny thing in order to 
to rejoice and talk about how great they are. And she's not part of that society. She's the queen that was already there. And we have so many examples of, of uh, interactions, violent interactions of this kind in the history of the world, pre, pre Beowulf and post Beowulf and today. So it's pretty obvious to me that humans have always done things like this, that this is not a unique story where something super weird has happened here. This is a story about a colonizing group who has taken land that belonged to somebody else. And here they are, and it's an uncomfortable and violent interaction um, involving dispossession and and murder. So, and, and great discontent, like Grendel suffers from the sound of these people. They, he can't bear it. And uh, he does some wild stuff. <laughs> he does a lot of killing, but they also don't do it. They don't move. They stay. They keep, they they don't move out of here. They're like, oh, misery and grief and woe. And we've suffered. We're cursed by this monster, but they don't do anything about it. They just uh, sit in their shiny place, which is also pretty, we know, we know a lot about this kind of behavior. This is like really so many examples of, of, rulers who are so stubborn that they won't take care of their people um they won't back down they just want their they want their their trophy and they will do anything they will let all of their citizens be slaughtered in order to have the prize so it's a story about all the things that human humans have always done to each other i think well i, I would like to speak to something about grendel's mother in relationship to Le Guin, the person but before I do, I was just hoping you'd read two non-consecutive paragraphs from your essay, Stop Calling Ursula a Grand Old Dame. Okay. My friend was aggravated about the designation Grand Dame, specifically about which I said, she's being described as something in an enormous skirt. Neither of us wished to see Ursula K. Le Guin described as something in an enormous skirt, a sort of mother ginger figure rolling across the scene, petticoats filled with baby writers who she, as a woman, would mother and mentor into viability. Not that she didn't mentor a ton of people. She gave critiques, redlined articles, and explained her own archives. She was open for communication and corresponded with dozens of writers. She reviewed books and helped to launch careers at a moment when most writers would have been sitting back on their literal heap of laurels. It is not remarkable that a woman might spend a life of nearly 90 years working tremendously hard and still be really cool. Women do this all the time. It is not remarkable to arrive at a stage in a long and ferocious life in which one manages somehow to be elderly, female, and still unflinchingly intelligent, rather than simply cozy. Many of the women I know, and especially many of the writing women I know of Le Guin's generation, worked for decades to raise children and to support themselves, writing in the dead of night. They are remarkable for continuing to nurture their own wild, fiery, precise imagination, refusing to let the wor world wring it from them. Inventing better universes is an intense business, and they spent their lives doing it. They are, I suppose I'm saying, neither grand nor old nor dames first. They're brave damn writers who have spent their time on earth doing brave damn work. I love this essay. Um... Thank you. I wanted to think of Grendel's mother in light of these words about Le Guin, insofar as you say that the original Grendel's mother was a warrior, not a monster, but called a monster, as you've suggested, presumably for doing things that women aren't supposed to be doing, even if men are doing them all the time. Mm -hmm. 
But also you've pointed out that Grendel's mother is 70 years old and does hand-to-hand combat with an 18-year-old who is one of the best warriors in the world and almost kills him. That in the world in which Beowulf was written, it wasn't crazy to imagine that, which suggests that, no, I mean, maybe you're suggesting that the original text and culture had the capacity to imagine a, a, a woman in that context in a way that subsequent generations maybe haven't been able to. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I learned as I was working on this text was that the original was much more just than I thought it would be. I The way that the poet talks about Grendel's mother is not a minimization of her. He talks, or he or they, whoever the poet was who wrote this, talks about Grendel's mother as intense, as someone that, and not as monstrous, as someone who is dangerous, as someone you should really think think hard about going in to confront, not as someone who's like weird, particularly, like kind of amazing, kind of marvelous and, and wonderful. Um, and it's the same way with even the language surrounding like, uh, Wealthyow, who's Hrothgar's wife, in the original, the way that she speaks, she gets the floor, she gets to talk. She's the only woman who gets to talk in the poem. And she talks for a while about who's really in charge in a way that I think is saying, I'm the one in charge here. Like, don't fuck with me. I have everyone's ear. All these warriors are mine. My husband is old. Um, hear me when I say that I have some power. And the poet doesn't question that. It's like part of what we, what the poet accepts about the story, rather than someone saying, let me tell you how weird and uncouth it is for her to say these things that Mm -hmm. she's saying to her husband. She's also correcting her husband and saying, did you forget we have children? Are you adopting a new warrior to be our son? What, what are you doing? Did you, I know you would never forget. You would certainly never, you're such a good guy. You would never. And clearly she's saying, oh, what you would, Mm -hmm. you would, you fool. Um, and you know, the other women in the story are similarly treated. They are treated as, as interesting and as, as really as people, but as translators went about their business working on it, I think often what happened was that the translators were like, well, those are the boring parts. I'm going to jump across that long banquet. that's boring. has a woman talking in the middle of it and she's saying some nice peace weaver stuff, whatever, boring, um, so I always thought those were boring sections too, until I went and interrogated what was actually on the page and thought, well, what is she really saying? Why is she, why is she talking this long if she's saying something boring? And a storyteller wrote this. Why would they, why would they have her say something boring? That seems unlikely. And it was unlikely because it's not boring <laughs> and it's threats, um, which yeah, it's not outside the realm of the world for her to do that. And nobody comments. It's not like, it's not like, oh, bad girl, you know, it's more like, oh, the queen, that's how the queen behaves. And it's, I, that's one of the interesting things about that material, because it's like, you know, it's like 10th century or earlier and the story original story earlier still. And then we have another thousand years of like increasing captivity for women and increasing ideas about how small one must be in order to be able to survive in order to not be murdered. Um, what, what you're allowed to own, not your own body, you know, like smaller and smaller allowability for ownership. You don't get to be the queen who actually has the weapons. 
you can be a queen without the weapons maybe mm. um, figurehead queen but you can't like be in there with your sword and you know like i it just not that things were fair but the the way that the storyteller treated them was with respect i guess is what i'm saying and that was an interesting thing to encounter in that text but i wasn't i wasn't ready for it i didn't know that's what i was going to get and it was there well before we leave beowulf could you speak just for a moment on Toni Morrison's contribution to the Beowulf discourse? Since we brought in Tolkien on on one end of the spectrum, Toni Morrison also has a an important meditation on Grendel's mother as well. Yes, I mean that essay is amazing. It's uh, you know, it's about the othering of Grendel and his mother and the ways that the ways that monsters are created in cultures. There's, uh, I think I'm going to read a little chunk of it to you, but it's, I mean, it's Toni Morrison, Toni Morrison genius in thinking about all things in this category, her whole career. And when I first encountered um, this essay, it was later, I was, I was already, I'd already written Wife when I encountered the essay, um, but I had encountered Toni Morrison, it, it was a big uh as a teenager, I read Beloved and it, it changed everything about the way I thought about the world. I, I hadn't, you know, Idaho, rural Idaho. I didn't know, I didn't know anything about, I guess I would say that I didn't know anything about anything. And then I read Beloved and went, oh, there's like all of this story that has been invisible to me, has not been in front of me, has not been on the shelf in front of me. And it made me think about everything because of that. And, and, the, that essay is a similar, I think a similar pride to the system. It's a similar thing that goes under the edge of it and goes, wait a minute, just like flip it over and look here. Mm -hmm. This is an obvious thing about the Beowulf story. This is an obvious thing about the history of its impact on the society, the way that we've used it to justify our creation of monsters, the way that we've used it to, um, to say, oh, well, monsters have to be here because here we are, we're heroes <laughs> as white people. Um, and and the idea that that monsters have to exist in order to create satisfaction for the ruling classes is uh, runs right through our understanding of Beowulf and our understanding of what that story is about. So that's that's what that essay is about, and it's it brilliant. Well, I, I picked out a, a little section to read from Morrison's essay. The reason I picked this section out is because um, it reminded me of Le Guin's engagement with conflict and violence and texts and how she's always questioning whether stories have to be shaped around conflict at all. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems like Morrison sort of latches on to a certain interpretation around violence that I thought was really interesting in this, in this paragraph. I suggested earlier that evil has no father, but it should not come as a surprise that Grendel has a mother. In true folkloric epic fashion, the bearer of evil of destruction is female. Monsters, it seems, are born, after all, and like her sisters, Eve, Pandora, Lot's wife, Helen of Troy, and the female that sits at the gate of Milton's hell, birthing vicious dogs who eat one another and are replaced by more and more litters from their mother's womb. It turns out that Grendel's mother is more repulsive, more responsible for evil than her son is. Interestingly enough, she has no name and cannot speak. I would like to follow these images, but at some other time. In any case, this silent, repulsive female is a mother, and unlike her child does have a motive for murder. Therefore, she sets out immediately to avenge her son. 
She advances to the mead hall, interrupts the warriors reveling at, the, at their victory, and fills the pouch she carries with their mangled bodies. Her vengeance instigates a second, even more determined foray by Beowulf, this time on the monster's territory and in his home. Beowulf swims through demon-laden waters, is captured, and entering the mother's lair, weaponless, is forced to use his bare hands. He fights mightily, but unsuccessfully. Suddenly and fortunately, he grabs a sword that belongs to the mother. With her own weapon, he cuts off her head and then the head of Grendel's corpse. A curious thing happens then. The victim's blood melts the sword. The conventional reading is that the fiend's blood is so foul it melts steel, but the image of Beowulf standing there with the mother's head in one hand and a useless hilt in the other encourages more layered interpretations. One being that perhaps violence against violence, regardless of good and evil, right and wrong, is itself so foul, the sword of vengeance collapses in exhaustion or shame. I could imagine Le Guin giving a big thumbs up to that interpretation <laughs> yes. by Morrison at the end. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'd like to spend much of the rest of the time that we have together talking about Virgil, but before we do, I wanted to share a couple thoughts on some other Le Guin translation activities that feel informed by a feminist ethics to see what thoughts it sparks in you. So we've covered how engaging with the largely male hero's journey in order to interrogate valorizations of masculinity is one strategy. But I was thinking about two other strategies of feminist translation. Le Guin has translated both novelists and poets from the southern cone of South America, from Chile and Argentina. And in the case of deciding to translate Gabriela Mistral, Chile's first of two Nobel Prize laureates in literature, the first Nobel Prize laureate in, in Latin America, I believe, it seems like the choice is a feminist choice here. It's a feminist choice less because of how she translates the work, though it is in this way also, but rather who she chooses to translate. That Le Guin knows quite a bit about the ways canons are formed, the ways someone quite popular in their lifetime can slip away into the margins and not enter the canon and become a footnote to history, particularly women and people of color. And in the case of Chile, Pablo Neruda, the other laureate, is much more read by orders of magnitude and there was very little of Gabriela Mistral's poetry um, in English when Le Guin decided to remedy that. She says, Poetry is likely to suffer an eclipse after the poet's death. Men survive it much more often than women. Not only the sentimental caricaturing of Mistral, but also the fame of Pablo Neruda may have deepened the shadow on her. To those who see art as a competition and greatness, as a masculine preserver, Mistral might well appear as a threat to Neruda, not least because he learned so much from her. Um, and to add to this, more words of hers that speak both to your essay about the grand old dame and that she was also translating in order to redeem qualities in the text that were being overlooked, she writes, Mistral has been officially sentimentalized into a poetess of children and motherhood. Translations and even selections of her work in Spanish 
have tended to underplay the darkness, the strangeness, and the raging intensity of her poems of grief and pain, the yearning power of her evocations of the Chilean landscape, the stark music of her round dances, the visionary splendor of her hymns of America. And another passage that makes me think of Grendel's mother. Who's afraid of Gabriela Mistral? I'd say that anybody who reads her might well be afraid of her. She can be frighteningly strange. Many of those who wrote about her had to tame her, to reduce her before they could admire her. The formidable woman who scared off her suitors and fled from her patrons got petted and patted down into acceptable femininity. I guess I wondered if translation as an act of feminist archival work in this way, translation against erasure in the world at large, choosing to translate someone who's being erased. Um, if this brings up anything for you and, and the work that you're, you've done and are doing. One of the things that I think about just hearing that passage is, um, is the way that in order to sort of persevere as, as a woman poet, um, often what has happened is that you either have to be quotable in an inspiring way in a kind of like, lovely one-liner uh what what will you do with your rare and precious life like mary oliver whose work is ferocious like that line orphaned from its context gives you no sense of the work of of her work um and no sense of her claws but the claws are there in the work um but i think about the ways in which women's work is so often sanded down so often like made softer, made nicer, made gentler, made more nurturing, made more cozier, just like I was saying in the essay about Le Guin, um, whose work isn't cozy. And it's um, one of the things that I have, that I think about as I read women authors from the history of literature, who are sometimes not as famous as they should be, like, like Enheduanna, right? So she's like, pre-Gilgamesh, she signs her work, she's the first poet that we know of who signed her work. And she is ferocious. The work is, it's hymns to Ishtar. They are rageful. They're angry. They're angry at the civilization. They're angry at the injustice of being in a position that is unsatisfactory for this woman, for herself. And um, and those poems have really never, until now, there's about to be a new translation coming out um, by Sophus Hella, which I think is going to be startling for people because her whole work has never been really appreciated or understood or put out into the world in such a way that we know that it's like really important work and angry work about being a woman in a society that's very different from ours but in some ways the same um so she's been not in the canon it's it's been Gilgamesh first yeah. but it's not true that's not what it is and it's uh yeah, like the, the sort of in nicening, I guess, of of women's work and work just work by anyone who isn't a straight man, I guess, is um is something that I I feel in my bones because <laughs> I don't want to be made nicer than I am. I'm not very nice. Like I have a big smile, but my soul is not nice. I am angry and rageful and rebellious, and my work reflects that. And I would be so angry if an angry ghost, if my work was just the nicest, prettiest, cutest things I ever wrote, which, right. you know, that's part of it too, but that's not what I really write about. Mm -hmm. um, but so much of the work 
in the history of women in literature is is the redacted versions of the of the true stuff where we're screaming curses at civilization and saying I will do what I want to do I will have my body I will own it I will I will I will defend my child I will I will fight and then you know time passes and it's like I'm just a being made of love and I'm going to eat peaches and and you know maybe you said that once but that is not all you said (laughs) and and so I you know I it's I think it's very important to continue to reinvigorate the work that that is just mentioned in the canon the work that's like the the like sort of boring work I think it's always important to like reinvestigate the work that looks like it might be boring and see what's actually underneath there because frequently it is not it's it's complicated and rageful and glorious and full of blood and love and joy all the things that constitute an entire person which all of these writers were and are um yeah so i so i i think about what wouldn't just that that section you're reading is is really relevant to to all of the work i guess and all the work that that i do and that i want to do and that i see other people doing and that i really appreciate them doing because it's it creates a new understanding of what the reality of human storytelling has been that it's not just like the men tell the real stories and the women tell stories about the niceness or about the agony and the waiting, like their Penelope stories. Like there are a lot of Penelope stories, but far less of the stories of the woman who's riding through the battle with her sword swinging. Those stories got like, what? We have no context for that. We'll just like push that over here somewhere. We'll hide it. But, you know, we see those, we see them in the, um, and things like we're going to talk about the Aeneid and it's in there. We see a woman like that. And when you read about that character, you also see that the other works about that character are missing. Why would they be missing? I don't know. Maybe somebody didn't like that look, the look of those works. So those works were troubling. You know, the idea that there could be a surge of change is a troubling idea. And the idea that parts of the population have always been crushed down, varying parts depending, but almost always women, um, as one of the groups that has been consistently crushed down through the history of humans. Um, you know, the idea that the rebellion is in the story has been dangerous. So burn those, burn those and put them away. Yeah. Um, but you see the scraps still, you see the references and you can reconstitute them. I think it's sort of like, like a bouillon, you know, like you're making some soup, some very strong soup out of scraps, (laughs) (laughs) but you have to, you have to do it. You have to try it. Yeah. Well, I want to bring up one other strategy that I noticed of Le Guin's around uh, feminist re- feminist translation or feminist retellings. I don't know if this is a situation that speaks to your work at all, but I don't want to presume that it does or doesn't. But I, but I felt like it was important to mention it before we pivot to Virgil. I think of it in, in I frame it from a conversation that I had with the Mexican writer, Cristina Rivera Garza. Um, for her she said that part of a feminist ethics of translation is creating a horizontal relationship with her translator where she considers her translator a co-author where they both comment and revise the writing itself and the translations of the writing where perhaps like Le Guin, when we were talking at the beginning about her seeing writing as translation as creation and, and, and that translation was creation and creative in its own right. I, th- I think of this when I think about a book that she did with the Argentinian poet, Diana Biesi, 
they did a book together called Gemelas del Sueño, The Twins, The Dream, that includes both of their poetries and where they're each other's translators. So we get Ursula's poems, Diana's translations of them, Diana's poems, and Ursula's translations of them. And it felt important to bring this up as a mode, I guess, of non-hierarchical translation. Given that you can't create a horizontal or non-hierarchical translation or relationship with your long-dead authors, maybe this isn't something that speaks to what you do, but I wondered if it brought up anything on, on your end. I've certainly had my work translated, though. I've been um, in contact with translators over the years, trying to translate idioms, trying to to understand the subtext of things that I've written or the like wordplay of things that I've written because the wordplay works only in English. Um, that whatever it is, like the the alliteration only. It's the same problem with the Beowulf. It's a different different relationship, but the same problem. I think kind of covetously about doing a book like that where I could actually talk to the other person and we could have a non-imaginary conversation and be able to imagine through different linguistic filters each other's work it would be very satisfying. Mm-hmm. I The only thing I can say about translating the, the dead and anonymous or just the very dead, um, which is what I've been doing lately, is that I have had the feeling of, I guess, of of holding their hand. Like it's something that I think about all the time as I'm working. And it's something I thought about throughout the Beowulf and especially thought about in my own, I think, crucial misassessment of who the translator, who the writer of this poem was. Like I, I, I realized partway in, and I had written the mere wife, I had been all through this stuff. And I realized partway into the translation that I was assuming the identity of the person who wrote it very a you know, very clear identity. I thought I knew that this person was a man. I thought I knew this person was, um, you know, a straight guy who had some battle experience. And I don't know why I thought that. Like, I realized that, of course, I'm, I'm not a straight man. And I am translating Beowulf. And if you rub my name off of it, you wouldn't know that about me. It would be invisible. So it made me really think about the ways that identity can can sort of travel in mysterious ways. Like storytelling identity is a very fluid identity. And so when when we talk about sort of non-hierarchical relationships with the, with the originator of a text, it was like that for me. I was sort of like holding the hand of this ghost going, how can we make it so your story still lands, ghost? Can we make it so they still laugh at your jokes, ghost? And the ghost is like, well, let me explain to you what the joke should sound like. Like, let me tell you how it should ring. And I'm like typing, going, okay, let's see if we can get it that way. Um, which was very, sounds very woo-woo, but was part of my project of of bringing that dead unknown person, unknown, but very famous person into being as I was working on this and, and giving them an identity as a speaker. Yeah, which is exactly what Le Guin does in Lavinia with Virgil being a character and a ghost. So in a, in a, in a way that's um, very in line with a, um, or a shared sensibility between you and her. When I reached out to you originally, which I did entirely because of your work with Beowulf, I had no idea uh, until I reached out to you that you were working on a 10-hour musical adaptation of the Aeneid for Audible, um, 
learning that you were adapting the Aeneid just as Ursula had herself uh, done a retelling in her last novel, Lavinia. It seemed wildly uncanny to me to learn this and a sign that this was this conversation was meant to be. Um, I know for Le Guin, unlike for Margaret Atwood when she wrote her book centered around Penelope, Atwood considered that book a critique of Homer. Le Guin makes it clear that even as she chooses to elevate and center a female character that has no voice in the original story, she does not see Lavinia as a critique of Virgil, that she actually thinks, generally speaking, if not here in this example, that he's good with women. But before we talk about Le Guin's engagement with the Aeneid at all, I want to talk about yours. Tell us why you choose to engage with Virgil and, and with the Aeneid, um, what your guideposts or influences or considerations are in adapting it, and then also how do you position yourself when you're talking about these ghosts? Um, and we're examining maybe the prejudices you come towards the source text and whether they're true or not. How? What is your relationship like also with Virgil and uh, in terms of how much are you doing an Atwood or are you doing the Le Guin, for instance? Well, this project came to me um, right before the pandemic. I had just had a baby. I was I had a three month old baby in my lap when I had the first conversation with my son, and uh, I I didn't know what kind of writer I was going to be anymore. I had like lost my way. I knew I was a writer. I've always been a writer, but I thought, what am I gonna? What am I doing? I don't know how to write. I all I can think about are is I can only think about milk and cries um, and different kind of music <laughs> than, the, than the verse that I had been working in intensely. I've been working on the Beowulf translation uh, while I was pregnant with him. And so they, the people at Audible UK called me and said, would you do something with the Aeneid? Would you do like a full cast Aeneid? And I was like, no, I don't really... I don't really like the Aeneid. I don't, I'm not I'm into it. I like Dido and Aeneas. That stuff is interesting and really, um, that's the only part I really am interested in. And they wanted the whole thing. And I did, I had a lot of ideas about like turning it inside out and really examining the women in the way that I've done in other parts of my work. But it turned out, as I thought about it more, that what I really wanted to do was talk about creation under pressure. I wanted to talk about what happens when you're working for someone very powerful to create propaganda, but you're also a creative artist. You're also a poet, um, as Virgil was, working for Augustus to make something that would make Augustus more stable in his rulership, more stable in his inheritance of Julius Caesar's um, power. And so he wanted to be like, I am obviously a god on earth. <laughs> write that poem, write about my, my ancestor Aeneas, make everyone know that I'm divine with this epic poem and also make it like Homer. So no pressure. And uh, <laughs> right. in Virgil, I knew only a little bit about Virgil at this point. I knew, I mean, I'd read Virgil, I'd read the Aeneid, but I didn't have any like real depth of longing for this material. Um, and I, I knew that Virgil had died working on this. Like I knew that he had just like, you know, the story is that he works on it for 11 years, can't get done, is being driven crazy. Augustus wants it, wants it, wants it. Finally, he 
is on a boat in the harbor of Vindicium and dies with it almost done beside his bed and pretty perfect, but like not done. And Augustus publishes it unchanged and it's glorious. The story of like the underpinnings of Roman history. And so I knew about that and I was feeling like I might die of any project at any moment I was feeling. And then the pandemic happened. So as the pandemic hit, I'm like, you know, I have a six month old baby. I'm trapped in an apartment alone with my baby and my partner and um, and Virgil. I had signed the contract. So I <laughs> I was very... I, I arrived at a heightened understanding of what it would be like to commit to a very difficult project that you didn't know how to do and to have the world around you also chaotic. Somewhere in there, it became a musical. I guess I'd always wanted to write a musical. I've written musicals as a playwright. And it became a sort of 10-hour Man of La Mancha kind of thing is what it is. It's a reimagining of the creation. Well, it's an imagining of the creation of the Aeneid. So it has chunks of the Aeneid in it and the writing of the Aeneid and the rewriting of the Aeneid. As Virgil goes on a kind of hero's journey, an Aeneas journey to the same places, to Carthage. Um, he comes, goes to Kumai. He goes he gets, goes to hell. He goes to Hades. He, he travels through kind of all of the difficult moments in an authorial life, dealing with a patron who is also feels that he's a poet. Uh, yeah. So, and it has songs and it has queer pirates and it has a young female <laughs> ghostwriter named Sulpicia who's been assigned to get the poem out of Virgil. And so she's just like, come to milk it from him essentially. And he doesn't want to give it up and he's just drunk and clinging to his frustrating verses um has a queer cabaret performer who's dido and who plays dido in this who's in carthage who's virgil's boyfriend <laughs> that sounds um, great it's Wait. it's a really accurately diverse version of this period of history with all of the poetry as well as a lot of the poetry not all of the poetry so it's like there's there's new translations but the translations are definitely adaptations um their song lyrics I turned a lot of Virgil's poetry into songs um and it's getting recorded in November and released sometime next year so it'll be downloadable 10 episodes of intense um Augustan Rome and also Trojan War baggage and pain and Aeneas and <laughs> right. gods and you know all of that stuff all the stuff that's in the in the Aeneid is in it so you you said you weren't going to sing any for us but that you picked out a little passage that you'd read Yes, I will. Okay. So this is a song that is the Lavinia. It's the, the big descriptive section uh, about Lavinia in the Aeneid, but it's being sung by Julia, who is uh, Augustus's daughter, his like beloved slash controversial daughter who ultimately ends up banished by Augustus maybe for trying to assassinate him. Uh, she's a big character in, in my adaptation, obviously, because she's interesting. But this is the section in which we get the story of how Lavinia gets promised to Aeneas. And it's a song, but I'm just going to, to recite the lyrics for you. There's a tree outside my bedroom window, the oldest tree in Italy, already tall by the time my father found it and built our citadel around it. Now it's crowned in bees. There's a new hive hanging just outside my window, buzzing and boiling, and the auger sees an army, a man marching out before them, coming to claim our country. 
I've been protected until this moment, chaste and very shy. Until bees come to Latium and swarm uninvited through our sky, I'm hidden in my father's house, still bidden by my mother, who's chosen me a husband I've never met. Men dream of the power I will bring them as a bride. I'm an impressive alliance, but all I am is Lavinia, 14. I'm a girl on fire, chosen to be someone else's fate. I'm destined to inspire the hero. It doesn't matter if I hate him. We step inside our family temple to consult the fates together. I falter, feeling the torture of being a king's daughter. I stand at the altar, sacred torch lit. I lean in, my hair catches fire. No one stops it. My crown melts, gemstones shining. I choke on smoke. The augur and my father are occupied divining. No one even notices Lavinia's hair is burning. I'm a girl on fire chosen to be someone else's fate. I'm destined to inspire the hero. It doesn't matter if I hate him. I run through the halls of my father's house, throwing sparks until I stop. I'm fine. The fire wasn't a fire, it was a sign. Only then do I hear them interpreting the omen. Lavinia caught fire, she's a prophecy. She's a story. Lavinia caught fire, she's an augury. She was only a daughter in a sonless family, but now Lavinia has a destiny. I'm the fiery sign that change is coming. I'm the blazing certainty of conflict and of shame. What's my name? It's Lavinia. I'm 14. The auger says I'll be famous, that they'll all write poems about me. The auger says I'll be blameless, but that my people will be sacrificed. My country will be colonized. I'm a girl on fire, chosen to be someone else's fate. I'm destined to inspire the hero. It doesn't matter if I hate him. My father goes to Albunea's grove to consult his own godly father. A voice booms out of the night telling him to go much larger. My son, don't marry Lavinia to the local Latins. Wed her to the stranger landing even now. Force the invader to be your family, not your foe. You have this little girl. Use her as a barter. Don't worry for her. She won't be martyred. She was born to be the mother of Rome. She was born to marry Aeneas and to leave this tribe alone. What the gods are asking cannot be denied. Let Lavinia, daughter of Latinus, be the Trojan's bride. But what does the auger know? The laurel tree outside my window will be turned into a spear. And all I am is Lavinia, in this the middle of my 15th lonely year. I'm a girl on fire, chosen to be someone else's fate. I'm destined to inspire the hero. It doesn't matter if I hate them. I have goosebumps. Good. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh well okay so that's so interesting that you picked a section on lavinia uh and what's so interesting about Le Guin's retelling of the aeneid called lavinia is it's really complex on the one hand she wonders why virgil doesn't dimensionalize lavinia beyond being a fair sad blushing blonde especially given how he renders dido the queen of Carthage, which according to Le Guin, he does very well. But then she realizes it wouldn't fit into the structure of his poem to dimensionalize Lavinia, that given that constraint, he couldn't have done it because, as she said, he had to do the battles. But her adaptation doesn't only take the Aeneid and dimensionalize and center Lavinia, this marginal, voiceless character, but goes beyond what Virgil told. She goes beyond the war 
to things that are only mentioned as prophecy in the original epic. But this move of elevating Lavinia could also be seen as an homage and extension of Virgil too, since Virgil himself took a minor character from the Iliad, Aeneas, Mm -hmm. and made this marginal figure in Homer's epic the center of his epic. So in a way, she's doing a move on Virgil of what Virgil did to Homer. And yet the complexity of Le Guin's retelling goes further than all of these things in that Virgil is also a character in Lavinia who has extended conversations with the character Lavinia. Virgil who regrets that he dies before writing the book further. He genuinely regrets his rendering of her. Uh, Virgil seems constrained by the hero's journey form himself. So in this sense, in the ways Le Guin continues the story, she sort of becomes Virgil for Virgil on his behalf. So that when Lavinia says, I am not the feminine voice you may have expected, and also, resentment is not what drives me to write my story. Anger, perhaps, but not an easy anger. It feels like this is a really complex statement by Lavinia. Um, you've already answered in your reading. You've already answered my question. My question was, what are your thoughts on gender in the Aeneid, and and how do you engage with it? Which is it's really obviously clear. And also, was curious what relationship your adaptation had, if any, to Lavinia. Uh, and I feel like we we sense some of that at least in what you've read, but. Talk to us about either of those things, Le Guin's Lavinia, your your thoughts on it, and or um, more thoughts on Virgil and and gender. She she gives him a lot of credit, I think, mm-hmm. deservedly or not. She does it in his spirit, I think. In her mind, she's she's doing this reparative work in the spirit of Virgil, not in, in not in opposition to him. Oh, I, I definitely agree. I mean, I was just doing a reread of that book, which I had read. I wasn't allowed to touch it while I was working on my own version. So I hadn't read it in years, um, but I read it when it first came out. And she really, she has the bones that Virgil gives her. And then she she fills out the skeleton, um, which I, and I think very much in the spirit of what, what Virgil has written. It's like, it's just, a, it's just not, it's not satisfying in, in the Aeneid because it's not enough. If you're a person, if you're a reader who wants to understand what the fuck has happened here, like she is, she's the catalyst for this major thing. She's the Helen of Troy of that part of the story. And she's the reason for the war. And then she just kind of disappears. <laughs> a bunch of terrible things happen. She just, she's not there for them. We don't get to see her. We see her run through once really. Um, her mother dies like, Every, everything awful happens to Lavinia. And then she's left still with the responsibility of destiny to carry the children and hold on to them um, and and be in the woods with a baby without a husband, you know, is what happens to her. She's And we don't get the whole story. It's a weird feeling because the thing isn't done. And I don't know what Virgil would have done. What, one of the things that I find really interesting about Virgil um, being as deep deeply wandering through all of his work for the past few years 
is how much tenderness he has. I mean, so much tenderness for the natural world, so much, so much interest in the natural world. And, and so much of the way he builds character is coming right out of that. It's coming out of the lives of bees. It's coming out of the lives of, of deer in the forest. He has a very, like, he's very grounded in that way. Even though there are gods doing all kinds of like huge godly dramas and things, the people are behaving tenderly to, toward each other in ways that, in the same ways that the creatures of the world do, um, tenderly and violently in some cases. But it's um, the, the stuff about Lavinia specifically, again, when I was talking about Beowulf earlier, I was like, well, all of it is already there. All the things that I did feel to me like they were already in there to be done. And I felt the same way. And I think Ursula also felt the same way working with those Lavinia chunks. All of what I just read you is really directly from the Virgil, just, just as her work is also really directly from the Virgil. But it's obvious that beneath those lines, there are assessments that you can make in terms of the emotion of them you can in terms of like what what does this girl feel as she suddenly catches fire she thinks she's dying no one cares everyone thinks it's wonderful and she thinks that she's on fire um you know i mean it's pretty easy to imagine oneself even if that's never happened to you um and it has never happened to me i've never been on fire like that but i've certainly been a catalyst for other people's feelings of fire over the course of my life. And I know obviously Ursula was too. Um, it's pretty easy to imagine suddenly being a prophecy. If you are a person who is an outspoken woman, if you're a person who is not only an outspoken woman, but a woman bent on, bent on remaining in that spot, bent on, <laughs> bent on, on getting the floor enough that you can make room on the floor for other people like you and other people who have, uh, revolutionary content to disperse. And, you know, I mean, in these poems with these magic, the magical world right alongside the, the grounded earthly world, there's so much room for that kind of time travel as a writer, I guess, that kind of like going in and imagining yourself, how it would feel, just imagining how it would feel to be in there. And I, I feel like the the Lavinia book, Ursula's book, is is a really deep re an imagining of the emotional life of a girl who finds that she is important but not appreciated, mm -hmm. <laughs> important but not understood, important but not respected, but very crucial. It's a pretty, I guess, it's a pretty standard position to find yourself in as a woman, even if you're not a famous woman, even if you are just someone living an ordinary, whatever an ordinary life is, living in a life that isn't well known to the chroniclers. Um, but you're still crucial. You're, there you are. If you're, if you're the person being married in your family, money is being taken, that money is trans, is being traveling because of you, that the, some, often the children are coming into being because of you, because of your body, you're building them with your body. So all of that stuff for me is like, it's always been really easy for me to imagine myself a thousand years in the past and perhaps even more so since I've had a child. Like I, it feels like, <laughs> again, a kind of holding hands with history, this feeling of like, well, this is how many people have done it this way. This is a thing that, that many people have done. Many people who have done storytelling, whose stories may or may not be accessible for me. Uh, maybe I can't get to those stories, but my body has the history and the history of of 
in the in the Beowulf story for me, like imagining oneself as the mother of a son, because there are mothers of sons throughout that material mm. who have to grieve their sons and who lose their sons. Um, it was very easy for me to imagine myself into that scenario and, and was even before I had a child. You don't have to have a child to to be able to imagine that kind of material. But it was a there was a pry into the history that was that was my recent experience of having had a child in my my experience as I was working on that text. And here it's the same. It was the pry into the history was my experience of girlhood, my experience of first love and uncertainty and hierarchy and being uh suddenly discovering that one is the possession of a powerful man when one doesn't know that's the relationship that you're in. Right. Um, all of that is like all throughout that material. There are warriors who are vowed to the gods. There are women warriors in there who are like, well, no men for me. And like, I imagine myself easily into that <laughs> material as well <laughs> and easily into the, um, into the imagination of Virgil, as it turns out, making these women up putting them in on purpose, putting in female warriors on purpose, putting in Dido on purpose, Dido who is enraged, Dido who cannot believe that she's been betrayed in the way she's betrayed by Aeneas, who just treats her casually and then gets sent away by his destiny and fate says, leave this woman, you got to go. And he's like, well, I'll just go get on the boat then. I'm not really going to talk about it. <laughs> you know, I mean, all of those experiences that run through the poem are the experiences of of a human. And I, in my, in my version of this Virgil experiences things in this category, sometimes as the, as Dido, sometimes as Aeneas, sometimes he's the lever, sometimes he's the left, but I, and you know, I mean, it's all biographical fallacy, of course, like it's all me imagining, certainly not everything I've written happened to me, but, but most of the emotional content of things I've written have happened. They're things that I can imagine because they've happened to me or because I can imagine them happening to me. Um, and the, I love that she that Ursula uses Virgil as a character in this and a character, a conflicted character, because it's so even just reading the Aeneid, it's so obvious he felt conflicted. He makes the hero a villain. By the end of the story, Aeneas is a villain. He starts out as a pretty conventional hero and kind of boring, and then he gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And by the end, midline, he's doing terrible stuff. Right. Um, and you have to wonder how that happened. And I, I think both of us wondered and wanted to imagine it thinking about you describing Lavinia alone and with a child in the forest too. I, I think there's some parallels between Lavinia and what Le Guin does in the, in the fourth book of the earth book series, uh, Tahanu, the book where the dramatic events of the wizard Ged are moved to the side and the domestic life of Tenar becomes central. But another radical move Le Guin makes in Lavinia beyond centering Lavinia is removing the gods from the Aeneid and sort of having the poet Virgil as an oracle of the future instead. Um, Joel Walton, in her review of the book, seems to intimate that one way to look at Lavinia is about the archive and, and about canon formation, but also even more so about writing itself uh, when Walton says, quote, Lavinia and Virgil talk and he tells her the story of the Aeneid, or looked at another way, of her future husband's past life. There's a lot more to the book than that, but that's the heart of it. A meditation on what it is to be at once a real and fictional character. How your life might be seen in the future as part of something you had no idea about. 
and Lavinia's common sense acceptance of all of this. The ground Virgil and Lavinia meet on is the ground of people who are both real and imagined. The poet and the maiden have more things in common than it seems at first. For the poet's life, too, is reimagined after his death in an unimaginable context. They talk about Aeneas's life, about Lavinia's life, about Virgil's poem that he knows he will not live to revise. On one level, the book is about the life of a woman who is hardly more than a token in a great epic poem. On another, it's about how history and context shape how we are seen, and the brief moment there is to act between the inescapable past and the unknowable future. I love this this excerpt of Joe Walton's uh, review. But to add on to that, um, Isaac Yuan, who was a previous guest on Crafting with Ursula, he, he came on to talk about writing about nature in Le Guin's work. He says in an essay, the decision to discard the gods in Lavinia augments one of the most successful elements of the book, the infusion of the natural with the divine. By returning magic back to the earth, the setting comes alive with a pervasive and luminous vitality. This supernatural enchantment of place also makes it easy to accept why the Latins live in perpetual worship of their world. So I'm not very well-versed in the Aeneid, so I wondered about the gods in it, um, both what she was removing and how big a removal it was that she marginalizes the gods, <laughs> centers Lavinia, and brings the author into the text as a character. It's interesting. The gods are are like a, they're like telenovela gods in the um, in the Aeneid. They they show up periodically and and yell at each other and have big drama like but it's not they occasionally show up as sort of like disguised messengers or helpers you'll see them like wandering around looking a little too shiny um but they're not the the notion of their power is integrated with the story but they are not as integrated as you might imagine they would be or as i would have imagined they would be they're they're cuttable mm-hmm. and i don't use them very much either because they're they're kind of they're the sort of the boring part of the Aeneid. They mm. they just like fight old battles and huh. and they they're the entertainment that they have is working the humans, um, and getting some stories down. They're like watching Netflix all the time, basically, <laughs> and creating their own content. Um, so it's it's interesting. Like the 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 things that are really volatile in the Aeneid are the kind of hybrid characters, like the Sybil. You get a real sense of the Sybil. The Sybil is like screaming, possessed by Apollo. Can't is constantly fighting, be, fighting the possession, and trying to remain human. So there's, there's like a, that liminal character of the Sybil, really interesting. Um, and there are other things kind of like that. There, there's like trouble where, you know, occasionally like a god will just toss someone into the water and drown them as a sacrifice, and those are emotional moments in the in the end which I think are very vigorous, but the stuff with the gods feels kind of attached. Like, like Augustus wanted those gods and was like, we need the gods, obviously, because that's the whole reason for this. <laughs> right. Put more gods, more gods, Virgil. And Virgil was like, well, fuck it. I don't really, I'm not that interested in those. Okay. 
like typing wildly, um, stuffing some gods into the sections. And and that's it makes me feel tender towards Virgil because I have also gotten bad notes in my time. I have been like, man, this doesn't belong in my thing. Um, gotta put it in though sometimes. So so like the the omission or the removal of them almost feels right. Like I I feel like in in reading Lavinia again, I didn't I certainly didn't miss them. In that section, the gods are just like controlling battle from above, like occasionally going, who's winning? I have some, I have a bet on this, um, but it's pretty, the gods don't feel crucial to the material. And and what does feel crucial are things like the death of the stag that has been raised by Sylvia and accidentally gets killed by, by Aeneas's son and then causes everybody grieves the pet and the whole country starts to go to war because of the pet and because of the women of the country who also are feel angry that that Lavinia is going to marry the wrong guy and the women all go wild they're also possessed by goddess stuff but they also go wild in the way that you go wild when you don't have the power and you know there's no option but going wild you can't just like casually have a conversation because nobody's listening so instead you set the woods on fire and set and you know run screaming through the streets and you know all, all very relevant you can have that happen with or without gods in the mix mm-hmm. and certainly in our culture we have it happen with or without gods in the mix and it's it's like a pretty the choices of that kind are are very relevant to our time as well well as we come near to a close um thinking about um your your words here and also isaac uns about the bringing of the divine into the natural world in Le Guin's Lavinia. I want to return to Tolkien like we did at the beginning uh, and read the words of Le Guin about him that sort of echo, I think, maybe a sensibility that she's using when she um, does this with the gods uh, and nature. Tolkien's Middle Earth is not just pre-industrial. It is also pre-human and non-human. It can be seen as a late and tragic European parallel to the American myth world where Coyote and Raven and the rest of them are getting things ready for the people who are coming, human beings. At the end of The Lord of the Rings, the non-human beings of Middle-earth are dwindling away or passing into the West, leaving the world to mankind alone. The feeling is not so much nostalgia as bereavement, the grief of those exiled from dear community, tears by the waters of Babylon. My earth sea and the familiar forests and towns of much fantasy are not informed by that great vision, but I think they too imply that modern humanity is in exile, shut out from a community an intimacy it once knew. They do not so much lament, perhaps, as remind. The fields and forests, the villages and byroads, once did belong to us when we belonged to them. That is the truth of the non-industrial setting of so much fantasy. It reminds us of what we have denied, what we have exiled ourselves from. This isn't even a question, but uh, I don't know if any thoughts come to mind hearing it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just so, so beautiful and accurate. 
yeah and and anyone working with the the sort of range of texts that I've been working with is thinking about that stuff all the time because it's as we compare it to our world now and to and the great loss of our world the removal of close observation of of the natural world and of the growth cycles of the plants and the, and not just removal of close observation, but denial of close observation, refusal to acknowledge um, the effects of humans living in this landscape. Even as we are the gods of the landscape, we are the ones doing the divine actions on the rest of the planet's activity. Um, divine as in horrific divine, I guess. And it makes, yeah, it does make sense to, because of longing to set fantastical worlds in worlds that are not, that have not been consumed by desire for, you know, whatever the desire is, isolation, I guess, the like constant desire to make it so that we don't have to interact, so that we don't have to touch each other, so that we don't have to go to the well together. We don't have to um, be in, even in the street together. I, I'm always interested in sort of urban fantastical environments for that reason, because we get the sense of, the lost sense of village can be captured in those places in some cases, but the, yeah, the idea of the, like the, the fantastical being deeply entwined with the natural world that like monsters and beasts and, and the sort of somewhere in my collection, I've got a, I've got a book of medieval um, paintings of weather events, but they're all depicted as miraculous events. They're depicted as, um, a creature falls out of the sky and and we know that the creature was a comet but it looks like in that in the drawing it's surrendered as a person who's just falling through the clouds glowing and the entwinement of the fantastical with the with the natural is such a long-standing tradition that we are now we're now losing. I, I think we're just in a state of constant bereavement <laughs> and the bereavement of you know the loss of the winged creatures, the loss of our understanding of the paths of the winged creatures, the loss of our ability to just follow and see is really significant, even as we have gained all of this knowledge and we're ho holding tightly to all of the knowledge. And if you're someone like me, like the knowledge seemed like it was going to be such a glorious gift, like you would have access to all the libraries. And I imagined as a teenager, like overlapping the, the rise of the internet and Google like had the the libraries and the card catalogs before that and the physical library and then suddenly there was the capacity to touch everything that everyone had ever thought to like look at the Beowulf manuscript and make it bigger on my screen and to see the fingerprints you know it seemed to me that this would save the world you know I thought as a as a book hungry baby I thought this is going to fix it suddenly everyone will know that we've all been, there has been all of this intelligence and all of this empathy and all of this understanding throughout the whole history of humans. We've all longed for each other and longed to connect with each other. It will be obvious. And it turns out that it just became more and more and more isolationist and more space was set aside. And we decided that the miraculous wasn't very interesting when, when we're just surrounded by miracles all the time if you are a person who's looking at the history of storytelling, you see everything that we see now as normal events, as miraculous. It's obvious that fantastical literature is all based in the sort of blood of the, uh, the sap rising and the rivers coming at a certain time up out of the mountain. And it's all, 
wondrous. <laughs> so I don't know where I'm going with any of that. I'm just muttering about, <laughs> about the grief that you feel when you're studying history and also studying storytelling. Yeah. Um, you see, you see the ways in which we've made our world less remarkable and made our, our relationships with each other less joyful by, by making them smaller and smaller and more curated down to, um, non-strange encounters we've we've done so much work to make the world unstrange when the world just wants to be strange and the history of why we tell stories is to say i encountered something different something wonderful and weird was right there and i was there with that wondrous thing and we talked you know i mean that's the history of storytelling so and it's also the history of understanding each other so i i feel consistently concerned um, looking at what we've done now, where we try only to speak to people who are like us, where we try only to narrow our narrow our world to keep from encountering anything other than people we think might be monsters. We like to encounter those people still, and we like to create them that way still, but we don't want to converse, which is a deeply sad state of affairs. Certainly not everyone, but it's a certainly been a kind of viral understanding of the world in the last 25 years. Yeah. Well, let's go out with Le Guin's words from Lavinia itself. Okay. As I continue looking, I see things I never observed before. The city, or some great city, lies all in ruins, utterly destroyed and burned. I see another destroyed city and another. Enormous fires burst out in a line, one after another, enveloping a whole countryside in flame. Huge machines of war crawl on the ground or dive under the sea or hurtle through the air. The earth itself burns in oily black clouds. Now an immense round cloud of destruction rises up over the sea at the end of the world. I know it is the end of the world. I say to Aeneas in horror, look. Look, but he cannot see what I see in the shield. He will not live to see it. He must die after only three years and widow me. Only I who met the poet in the woods of Albania can keep looking through the bronze of my husband's shield to see all the wars he will not fight. The poet made him live, live greatly, so he must die. I, whom the poet gave so little life to, I can go on. I can live to see the cloud above the sea at the end of the world. Thank you so much, Maria, for, for uh, feting Le Guin and, and exploring feminist translation with me today. Thank you so much for having me on. This was really a pleasure. Yeah. We've been talking today to Maria Devana Headley. Stay tuned next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Maria Devana Headley's work can be found at mariadevanaheadley.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. Learn about the potential gifts and rewards of doing so at Patreon 
youtube.com slash between the covers. These include the bonus audio archive, which now includes a reading of Le Guin's translation of the Borges poem, written in a copy of Beowulf, read by Maria, which joins other readings in the archive from everyone from Daniel Jose Older to N.K. Jemison, Ted Chang to Carmen Maria Machado. There are also rare Le Guin collectibles, the possibility of becoming a Tin House early reader, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank Arwen Curry for the audio of Ursula from the documentary Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin that we use in the intro, William Anthony for the photograph of Ursula used in the banner, Tin House's Alice Evelyn Yang for the graphic design, Becky Kramer and Jane Nichelle for publicity, and Theo Downs Le Guin for being a bottomless well of ideas and insights. Finally, the music you hear, River Song, and the music in the introduction, Heron Song, come from the collaborative album by Todd Barton and Ursula Le Guin called Music and Poetry of Keshe. Thanks to Todd Barton for granting permission for its use. See you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula.